Section four of Rudder Grange. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rudder Grange by Frank R. Stockton. Chapter two. Treating of a novel style of border. Part two. Anything? I could not answer the man. Anything, indeed. I hurried on up the river without a word. Was the boat a wreck? I scarcely dared to think of it. I scarcely dared to think at all. The man called after me, and I stopped. I could but stop, no matter what I might hear. Hello, mister, he said. Got any tobacco? I walked up to him. I took hold of him by the lapel of his coat. It was a dirty lapel, as I remember even now, but I didn't mind that. Look here, said I. Tell me the truth. I can bear it. Was that vessel wrecked? The man looked at me a little queerly. I could not exactly interpret his expression. "'You're sure you can bear it?' said he. "'Yes,' said I, my hand trembling as I held his coat. "'Well, then,' he said, "'it's more'n I can,' and he jerked his coat out of my hand and sprang away. When he reached the other side of the road, he turned and shouted at me as though I had been deaf. "'Do you know what I think?' he yelled. "'I think you're a darned lunatic.' And with that he went his way. I hastened on to Peter's point. Long before I reached it, I saw the boat. It was apparently deserted. But still I pressed on. I must know the worst. When I reached the point, I found that the boat had run aground, with her head in among the long reeds and mud, and the rest of her hull lying at an angle from the shore. There was consequently no way for me to get on board but to wade through the mud and reeds to her bow, and then climb up as well as I could. This I did, but it was not easy to do. Twice I sank above my knees in mud and water, and, had it not been for reeds, masses of which I frequently clutched when I thought I was going over, I believe I should have fallen down and come to my death in that horrible marsh. When I reached the boat, I stood up to my hips in water and saw no way of climbing up. The gangplank had undoubtedly floated away, and if it had not, it would have been of no use to me in my position. But I was desperate. I clasped the post that they put in the bow of canal-boats. I stuck my toes and my fingernails in the cracks between the boards. How glad I was that the boat was an old one and had cracks! And so, painfully and slowly, slipping part way down once or twice, and besliming myself from chin to foot, I climbed up that post and scrambled upon deck. In an instant I reached the top of the stairs, and in another instant I rushed below. There sat my wife and our boarder, one on each side of the dining-room table, complacently playing checkers. My sudden entrance startled them. My appearance startled them still more. Euphemia sprang to her feet and tottered toward me. "'Mercy!' she exclaimed. "'Has anything happened?' "'Happened?' I gasped. "'Look here!' cried the boarder, clutching me by the arm. "'What a condition you're in! Did you fall in?' "'Fall in!' said I. Euphemia and the boarder looked at each other. I looked at them. Then I opened my mouth in earnest. "'I suppose you don't know,' I yelled, "'that you have drifted away?' "'By George!' cried the boarder, and in two bounds he was on deck. Dirty as I was, Euphemia fell into my arms. I told her all. She hadn't known a bit of it. The boat had so gently drifted off, and had so gently grounded among the reeds, that the voyage had never so much as disturbed their games of checkers.' "'He plays such a splendid game,' Euphemia sobbed, "'and just as you came I thought I was going to beat him. "'I had two kings and two pieces on the next to last row, "'and you are nearly drowned. "'You'll get your death of cold, and—' 
and he only had one king. She led me away, and I undressed and washed myself and put on my Sunday clothes. When I reappeared, I went out on deck with Euphemia. The boarder was there, standing by the petunia bed. His arms were folded, and he was thinking profoundly. As we approached, he turned toward us. "'You were right about that anchor,' he said. "'I should not have hauled it in. But it was such a little anchor that I thought it would be of more use on board as a garden hoe.' "'A very little anchor will sometimes do very well,' said I, cuttingly, when it is hooked around a tree. "'Yes, there is something in that,' he said. It was now growing late, and as our agitation subsided, we began to be hungry. Fortunately, we had everything necessary on board, and, as it really didn't make any difference in our household economy where we happened to be located, we had supper quite as usual. In fact, the kettle had been put on to boil during the checker-playing. After supper we went on deck to smoke, as was our custom, but there was a certain coolness between me and our boarder. Early the next morning I arose and went upstairs to consider what had better be done, when I saw the boarder standing on shore nearby. "'Hello!' he cried. "'The tide's down, and I got ashore without any trouble. You stay where you are. I've hired a couple of mules to tow the boat back. They'll be here when the tide rises. And hello, I've found the gangplank.' It floated ashore about a quarter of a mile below here. In the course of the afternoon the mules and two men with a long rope appeared, and we were then towed back to where we belonged. And we are there yet. Our boarder remains with us, as the weather is still fine, and the coolness between us is gradually diminishing. But the boat is moored at both ends, and twice a day I look to see if the ropes are all right. The petunias are growing beautifully, but the geraniums do not seem to flourish. Perhaps there is not a sufficient depth of earth for them. Several times our boarder has appeared to be on the point of suggesting something in regard to them, but for some reason or other he says nothing. End of section 4